there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's it going? Hope you're enjoying these final days of August, whether you're at school or out pounding the pavement looking for a job. Please tweet me at time, the number four coffee, LLC, and let me know how you're doing and how we can help you here at T4C. One of the things we're trying to do to help is feature amazing professionals at all levels of their careers. And this week and next week, we're focusing on kick-ass 20-somethings. This week in particular, we're focusing on the ladies, and next week, it'll be the guys. I want you to hear for yourselves that anything is possible at any age, and it just takes hard work, grit, and determination, and of course, smarts, and well, you can decide for yourself the other superpowers these young people may share with you. One other thing I wanted to tell you is that I actually recorded this episode with my next guest a few months ago, which is why there isn't a live introduction to them. So grab your mug and take a chug because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Corey Walsh. Full confession, I've actually known Corey for the last couple of years, ever since she joined the humanitarian and development organization Mercy Corps as an unpaid intern in 2016. The PA team, as it's known, was the team I used to oversee before I left Mercy Corps in 2017. And from the moment the PA team members and I interacted with Corey, we knew she was someone special. A double major in peace, war, and defense and global studies at UNC Chapel Hill when she graduated in 2015, Corey impressed all of us as someone who was extremely smart, funny, upbeat, passionate, and super hardworking. And so when a full-time entry-level position opened up on another team in the D.C. office where we worked, we all lobbied hard for Corey to get the job. Today, Corey is an assistant program officer on the Program Performance and Quality team. And as you'll hear, she's someone who is wise beyond her years. Our team covers four core functions. We cover program management, monitoring and evaluation, data management, and gender integration, which basically means it's our team's job to provide data-driven evidence to the agency to show that we're having the impact we say we're having so that we can figure out how we can adapt better and improve our programming as well as continue to receive funding from donors and instill confidence in the public that we're effective in what we're doing. And for my job, that means a lot of different things from day to day. I think technically, according to my position description, um, I manage our team's communications, I manage our team's admin needs, logistics, finance, those sorts of general housekeeping matters. And then uh, it's also my job to manage global data tracking so that our team carries out a number of international trainings, capacity buildings, and other sorts of transfers of information. So I need to track how that information is being transferred who's been trained, how their capacities have been built. The other things that fall in between that uh, are really exciting opportunities. So I am now a trained gender facilitator, which means I teach our gender content around the world to different teams and talk to them about how we can better integrate a gender lens into the work we do. 
I manage our intern program, which has been a really exciting opportunity to work with other young people on building their capacity. And then I also work on our team's trainings, which I already mentioned, but helping to build that content and curriculum at times, as well as orientations and other forms of learning. And then all the free time that happens in between those things uh, gets split between the four functions I mentioned. So I spend a bit of time doing technical program management support to our senior lead on program management, and then the same for gender monitoring evaluation and um, data management. So my day-to-day, my job looks very different sometimes. So when you were a student at UNC Mm -hmm. studying peace, war, and defense in global studies, did you imagine that you would be working uh, doing monitoring and evaluation? No, no, I didn't. I had a very, I thought I knew, I've gone through these phases in my life since I I committed to this career at an oddly young age. At the age of 11, I decided I was going to be an aid worker. And what that meant changed over the years, but I've always had this clear image and then I keep getting proven wrong. So I had an idea of what I was going to be when I graduated college, when I was in college. And then that was wrong, but has turned out to be better and more interesting than what I had planned. So that's really lovely. So what was it that you had imagined when you were at UNC? Well, I was going to graduate and I was immediately going to find a job because that's what happens to people now. And then I was going to take a job and move abroad and I was going to get a field job right out of college. And I don't think I entirely knew what that meant, but I was going to work overseas. I was going to help people. I was going to work on conflict and like that was the plan. And so it's not quite the plan, but it's it's pretty close to it, which has been incredible. So you've talked about the kind of technical functions mm-hmm. of what you do, but give us a sense of what your job has been like. And you've been in this position now for how long? Since November of 2016. So a okay. little over a year and a half. Got it. So I know because you and I have or chatted before yes. before we started taping that you've been traveling a huge amount. Give us a flavor of the job of a program assistant in this assistant program officer. I'm sorry. It's um, quite right. yes. As you mentioned, I get to travel, which is incredibly exciting. And the travel kind of breaks down into two categories. That's either offering technical assistance to one of Mercy Corps programs or doing capacity building with the staff. So the capacity building is offering trainings to our staff on program management or gender, things of that nature. So it's what you would imagine a workshop sitting down in a training with a group of people and walking them through a curriculum. Whereas the technical support visits are that there needs to be a capacity built within a program. So they need to strengthen their monitoring and evaluation or they need to improve a system. And then that's sitting with the program team and also working through what they have available and figuring out ways to improve what they're doing and help them grow. Um, And those have been really, really exciting opportunities. So I've gotten to travel to Bangkok and Tunisia and Nepal and London. And you just kind of have to pitch yourself because it doesn't doesn't feel real. And then when I'm domestic and in the U.S. and in D.C., it's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of making sure that we're staying in touch with the right teams and the right people. A lot of writing communications materials and training materials. How did you learn how to write training materials? Like where where is all that expertise and insight coming from? That's an excellent question. I think some of it you learn as you go. Um, 
I had experiences training people through some of my opportunities in college. And I think it's interesting when we talk about training, people think of this fancy complex idea, but training is essentially the transfer of knowledge. So if you've ever had, and I compared a lot to translating between English and another language, you're translating a competency from one person's understanding to another's. So if you've ever had to explain something to someone, I think that's pretty similar to training. And Mercy Corps already has a lot of really fantastic materials available. So it was becoming familiar with those and how they intended that information to be translated to our staff. And then I've always been comfortable in front of an audience. So then being able to talk to people and work through issues with them and have those sorts of conversations. How difficult is it being so young and then going into not just different offices, but different cultural contexts as a young Caucasian woman? Is it hard to command the the level of respect that you would hope to get in these settings? So it's easier when you don't tell people. <laughs> but of but course, you also look yes, I look young. I, you know, my when I was hired at Mercy Corps, they knew my age based on when I graduated college. But it's funny. It's not something I bring up in common conversation. So many people at the office didn't realize that I had come out of undergrad. And when I said I was in school previously, they assumed graduate school. So there's this kind of aha moment that happened again and again and again in the office where, and for some folks, it happened two months ago. We'd be talking about something and I'd say, you know, when I was at UNC and they'd say, oh yeah, you got your master's in pause. And I'd say, no, I just had my undergraduate and then you have to pick their job off the floor and hand it back to them. But I think I've had these moments in my life where I've really been challenged and not just at Mercy Corps, but other places because it doesn't always sit right with folks if you're of a certain age or a woman or you look young and some people can take it the wrong way. And I think you kind of have to get this attitude, always being respectful in the environment you're in, but also having the confidence to say, you know, I'm here for a reason. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't qualified. So we just need to work together. And in my undergraduate studies, I was in a rather conservative program with mostly men who most of the time were older than me and had very different values and beliefs than me. So I got pretty accustomed to expressing my opinion or trying to make myself heard when others in the room weren't necessarily interested in listening to me. Mm. And so how did you do that? First of all, you kind of have to understand your audience of why is it that these people don't want to listen to me? Is it that they disagree with my values, that they feel threatened by me? What is the, we always say at Mercy Corps, the root cause for the problem we see. So what's the root cause for why this person doesn't respect me or want to listen to me? And then you figure out how to work with that. And in college, what I recognized was that a lot of the men I was working with perceived me to be this stereotypical liberal, the touchy-feely, snowflake, sensitive woman. And I wasn't going to get anywhere until I acknowledged their stereotypes or perceptions. So I started off a lot of conversations in college speaking to men with 20 years experience in the military by saying, so I know we all think I'm a fluffy liberal here, but let's get down to it. And it took the awkwardness out of the room. And that's not something that works with all audiences, but with people with experience in the military who are used to that kind of direct communication, once you acknowledge the stereotype or the thing that's causing the bias, it kind of allows you to move past in the sense of, I'm aware why you think I'm unqualified. I know that. Let's put that aside and get down to the work we have to do. 
So speaking of the work that you do yes. in your job, I know having been in that space that the travel is exciting and it's exotic and it's to places that most people will never have the opportunity to go. But I know that there's also like the grind part of the job. So yes. can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, some of the some of the things that are less glamorous but that are really important pieces. Oh, definitely. So I, I was joking with a colleague about this this week, actually, that in college I traveled a lot to do research. And I was scrounging money from everywhere. Anyone who would give me a dollar to go on these trips to go do research. And I was spending a lot of my own money. And the first time I traveled with Mercy Corps, they were like, we're going to pay for your flight. We're going to pay for your hotel. And we're going to give you a per diem every day. And my mind was, I just remember this feeling of, really? You're going to give me money to eat every day? And just coming out of this mindset where I'd been working so hard for every penny, it was such a different way to travel. That being said, it does have its challenges. I mean, trips are long. It's a different lifestyle. I mean, some of my friends who live in D.C. joke that I live outside of D.C. because I'm so in and out sometimes. So it does affect personal relationships. It does affect the amount of time you spend with family, friends, things like that. And then on top of that, I think when you travel to the field, you work really long days. I mean, you are there to accomplish a task. And by the time you leave the country, the task needs to be complete. And there's only a certain number of hours. So you, I think people have this perception you do all this. When you travel, you get to do the tourism and the sightseeing. But I have gone to countries where I feel like I could have been in a hotel room in Ohio because... I was just there to do a job and that was what I had time to do. So it can be a little disappointing at times when you're excited to go to a new country and then you don't actually have the time to see the country. But that being said, it's incredibly lovely getting to interact with all of these cultures and people and the staff who work for Mercy Corps who are just beyond incredible. And what about when you're back in, here in D.C.? What are some of your average days? What are you doing? Sure. So I am neurotic about my email. I, Since I do so much communication for our team, that is the first thing I do when I get in the morning. That's the last thing I do before I leave. I like to keep it below five whenever possible. So clear out anything that could be urgent in the morning and then turn to my job and do the same thing again at the end of the day before I leave. Are you talking about actually deleting emails? No, responding to them. Oh, and responding. No, I like to keep the unread inbox oh, to five because if it's not read, it means I probably have to do something about it and that just starts to haunt me. But so I come in, I check email. Mercy Corps uses lots of communication platforms. So I check all the ways our field teams and our other team members could have contacted me to make sure I haven't missed anything. And then I listen to music every day. So that's when it's like I'm settling down to my work. I put my headphones in, zone in on whatever I'm doing, which is usually writing in a Google Doc or a spreadsheet, working in a data management software or something like that, and focus in on that till I have to go to my next meeting, take the headphones out, and get ready to engage with people. And it's kind of this back and forth between focusing on one of the projects I'm working on at that time and then interacting with people at meetings, which is where you get to talk about those projects or figure out how you're going to disseminate them to our staff overseas or how you're going to move forward with them. What have been the the skill sets that you brought to the job that you are have been you know most proud of that you have? And then on the flip side, where have the gaps been for you? And how have you sought to 
sharpen those skills? Sure. So I think one that plays to both sides of those coins is I've taken, I started taking French when I was a freshman in the high school and it was the first thing I ever failed at. I got a D in freshman year high school French and had to repeat the class. And it was like a personal battle. It's like, all right, I'm going to conquer you. I'm going to learn this language. And I've taken French for eight years now and I'm not fluent. I'm proficient and I can handle myself in French, but that's been very helpful. I often, when I have to speak French to our, our colleagues abroad, wish I was fully fluent and that would be nice. So I would always, I always recommend to people, if you can have a language fluency, do that. That will serve you well in international development. I think a lot of those soft social skills have been really important. So how to speak to a group of people, how to have a professional meeting, how to write an email, just all of those things. We're interacting. Our team is 5,000 people across 42 countries. So being able to interact in lots of different cultural contexts, being able to be respectful of a lot of different environments and operate in those, I think is a skill that served me really well. I was never, I never had a brain for math and science. I've always had a brain for explaining things, which has made the data work I do kind of an interesting challenge because it, the data, the math bit of it doesn't necessarily come naturally to me, but translating it to the rest of the world is something that makes sense to me. And I think that works because I have to work really hard to make it make sense to myself, which makes it easy to make it make sense to other people. So that's been a bit of a learning curve. And then I, for a millennial, I'm a technological Luddite. I <laughs> do not have the skills of social media and coding and platforms and all these different things. So I wish I'd paid more attention in my data science classes in college, but that's something you can learn. And I think as we were speaking about this earlier, but there's so much information available on the web right now. I think I came into my job with this attitude of I'm not going to know how to do everything, but I'm going to figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, I'll ask questions. So there was always this period in the beginning of, okay, I don't know what that acronym means, or I don't know what this who this donor is. When I got home that night, I would Google it. And I, it's all the hours you don't get paid for that you put in after to catch up for the learning you miss. So okay, this is a Canadian donor. I need to learn who they are, how their structure works, all of these things, so that the next time someone says that in a meeting, I know what it means and I know what I'm supposed to say in response to it. I'm so glad you brought that up because I am curious. What percentage of your time outside of work is spent filling in the gaps? It's less now, which is relaxing. I think in the beginning, I was so nervous when I started my job too. I think I think for young women, imposter syndrome is a very real and challenging thing. And I remember when I got my offer letter from Mercy Corps, called my brother, who I'm really close with, and I said, oh, my God, they offered me the job. I can't believe it. They must be crazy. And he was, what? And I was like, they're going to realize that I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're, they're, they're going to change their mind. Like, they must be confused. I was just totally convinced that it had to be a clerical hiring error or something. And he gave me this really exasperated sign. He said, the only person who is surprised you got this job is you. And like, that was kind of an important thing for me to hear at the time. I'm like, okay, I was hired for a reason. I have to trust myself, but I also need to catch up in the areas I feel like I'm lacking. So I think it's gone down over time as I've gotten more comfortable in my role, but 
when I first started this job, I was doing homework. You know, it's like being back in university. You have your classes, which is your day job, and then you go home and you do your homework. And the first time I was asked to use my French professionally, I had about two months advance notice. And I was really nervous because I'd been out of school for a while. So I started doing a free French class online because I was like, I cannot get up in front of a bunch of French speakers to try to train them on gender and have no idea what I'm doing. So I think those are those are the if you really want a career or a job or you want to have that success, those are choices you make of I'm going to put in the hours after work, the voluntary hours to give myself this competitive advantage or the skills that I need to do the job I want to be doing. And I don't want to burst your bubble. Yes. But even when you get longer in the tooth, Mm -hmm. I mean, I found with my job at Mercy Corps, and at that point I was in my late 40s when I started the job there, I had never worked in international development before. I was spending so much of my time outside of work reading reports, trying to educate myself, trying to get better, and always feeling, always feeling like there was more that I could and should be doing. So I hope that others take comfort in knowing that it's either comfort or being totally depressed. To know that as you evolve in your life and move, chances are, in and out of different professions, you're probably going to have to do some... I think that's kind of the beauty of it, though. I mean, who would want to go through life without learning? It's that you do a job until... My personal belief is you should do a job until you stop learning at it, and then you should be promoted or move to the next thing or explore the other option. But we have this saying in my family that I really love that's if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're either too big for your britches and need to check yourself. Or maybe it's time to find a new room to be in because you've learned all you can learn from that room. Uh, And there's never been a day at Mercy Corps where I felt like the smartest person in the room just because we have so many brilliant colleagues to learn from. Well, let me just say you are not too shabby, young lady. Thank you. (laughs) So let's talk about maybe getting into college. Sure, definitely. I went, I was privileged to go to a very fine private high school uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where it was the thing to be done was that you applied to 12 to 15 schools. And it was this very competitive process where you were expected to go to an Ivy. You were expected to go to a small liberal arts college in New England, like Boats or Baden or one of those sorts of things. And I wanted to get the heck out of Massachusetts and see a different part of the world. So I applied to 12 schools in nine different states, I want to say. And it was my dream to go to Georgetown. And I got rejected early decision. And then I got rejection letter after rejection letter. And I was rejected from nine of the schools I applied to. I was accepted to one and waitlisted at two. And I thought that was like the end of the world. How did you do with that disappointment? I cried a lot. <laughs> but I think that's kind of natural. I, you know, I I mentioned earlier about the way you build up your plan for your life. And my plan was that I was going to go to Georgetown and have all of the success that I'd hoped. And then I saw my peers getting into these universities and I wasn't. 
I've always been a person who just kind of makes decisions and commits to them and you got to have this sense of resolve. And I said, okay, I'm going to pick from the best of these three options I have. And I picked to go to University of Colorado at Boulder, which is a, a fine school, but it didn't, there's then this social element to it. I had a peer in high school come up to me and she said, I, I heard you're going to Boulder. I said, well, yes. And she goes, I thought someone like you could get into a better university. And I had a teacher at my high school say, I hear you're going to Boulder. Is that by design or default? So it was this incredibly competitive environment where I was not only breaking the mold by going to a state school, but I wasn't going to a good enough state school in the eyes of those around me. So I think that was very challenging. But I went and I decided I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to do what I can. And I was an international affairs major with a peace and conflict studies certificate. And I already knew I wanted to do conflict work. And I finished the certificate the first semester I was at Boulder. And I was like, I can't spend... How long does it usually take to... Couple semesters, I think. Oh, okay. So you just... I just... I loaded up my... I took every class I could. And I was like, I need to be doing conflict studies full time. But I'm loving being at this big state school that's super diverse and... I went to this high school with 400 kids and now I was surrounded by all these interesting people with super different backgrounds than myself. And it was also pretty clear to me at Boulder that as fantastic university, most astronauts of any school in the country, but that there weren't a lot of research opportunities for the liberal arts. And I wanted to do research in college. So I had my criteria and I wanted to transfer to a state school that had research for liberal arts for undergrads where I could major in conflict studies. And that left one university, and it was UNC. And I'd already applied and gotten rejected from it when I was a senior in high school. And I was like, okay, I'm going here. And I had a had had a 3.2 in high school, and I had a 4.0 at Boulder, and just worked my butt off in my application and kind of had this – I made the decision in my mind I wasn't going to let them reject me. And luckily, that worked out. And were you happy there? I was really happy at UNC. It was really hard. And this this goes back to the kind of dichotomy of when you look back on your life, it's really positive. But you also have to remember, I think, when you talk to other people that parts of it are imperfect. When I transferred to UNC, I thought this will be easy. I'm going to have the academics I've been looking for, research opportunities. It might be kind of a hard switch academically because it's more rigorous, but the social stuff would be easy. And it was the inverse. I was having the time of my life academically. It was hard, but I was loving my professors. I was challenged. I was taking classes I wanted to be taking. And then, you know, you transfer to a school with 18,000 kids a year in and nobody notices the new kid. So there's all of this. It, it was flipped of what I had expected. And I really had to put effort in socially to make friends and to meet people, which wasn't really something I think I had to do because in high school, it's small. And when you're a freshman in college, everyone wants to hang everyone's out. New. Everyone's yeah. new. And then no one's new when you transfer. So I think that was challenging, but I it is probably one of the better decisions I've made because I got so much out of that program. I mean, as I mentioned before, it was more conservative than I had expected when I transferred, but it was a hard power take on peace and conflict issues. How do you, what is the strategic and tactical approach to war, global history of weaponry, ethics of engagement and conflict? And I, my peers all had military backgrounds or were interested in intelligence or defense. And the courses were fascinating and the professors were of top caliber. But every time I opened my mouth, 
the assumption was that I was wrong. So I had to learn how to articulate myself incredibly well, defend my opinion. I had to have evidence for everything I was going to say. And so it was a, it was an incredibly worthwhile experience. And I think it also took some of my own bias, if we're honest, because you grow, I grew up in a very liberal family in Massachusetts. You don't meet a lot of folks in the military. Don't meet a lot of folks from the South. And I had this mindset when I got to college. Well, I'll just explain to them why their views are wrong and then they'll change their mind, which is a very arrogant 18-year-old thing to think. And then I met these people who had these different worldviews. And surprisingly enough, they did not change their mind when I explained my opinion. And now I have good friends who are in the military, who've been in the military for 20 years, who are serving our country overseas. And as someone working in international development, it gives you a really different perspective on the issues, I think, which has been very valuable. The thing that impressed me about you when we met several years ago was your extracurricular activities that you were engaged in both in high school and then in college. Could you talk a little bit about that and whether you feel that has given you an edge in any way, having done this volunteer work? Yeah, I definitely don't. I mean, I I think anytime you have to figure out how to balance in your life. And I definitely sacrificed what would be a traditional or normal college experience. I still had friends in the social life. But I was committed to my academics and then I was committed to my extracurriculars, which meant less weekend and late night social activities. But it's it's a choice you have to actively commit to. And I think it was definitely worthwhile. And I some of my best learning in college was out of the classroom. And especially at a state school, you get out of it what you put into it. There's tons of funding opportunities. There's lots of fellowships and internships and all sorts of things, but you have to pursue them. No one's going to say here is an opportunity. I had a general sense of where I wanted to be after college. And I thought the more I can get down on paper of things that represent what I'm passionate about, the more success I'll have. So I would save up money so I could take unpaid internships. I would live at home in the summers and take internships around Boston where I could And I I think there's a huge element of privilege there that my parents were able to support me financially at times, that I was able to operate in social circles thanks to my university that allowed me access to certain things. But if I were to pick a few really influential experiences from high school and college, I think the first one would be my thesis, which isn't really an extracurricular, but uh, I did... a. optional thesis my senior year on the Rwandan genocide and social variables that motivated civilian participation in violence. I decided to do it my junior year, and I had previously read a book by a well-known in certain circles French scholar who specializes in comparative genocide studies, which is a very kind of niche area. Loved his book. On a whim, wrote him an email in French and said, hello, I love your work. I don't know if you accept interns, but I would love to come intern for you this summer. I can get funding from my university if you'll have me. Thinking I would never hear back from him. He emailed me three weeks later. He said, yeah, I'll take you. You need to have your own project. And I'll only take, and I don't like people who research countries they've never been to. And I said, I'm starting a thesis in the fall on the Rwandan genocide, I could do preliminary research for that. He said, that's perfect, but you have to go to Rwanda first. So hit the pavement, started looking for funding around the university, 
I got my airfare covered to go from the U.S. to Rwanda, Rwanda to Paris, and then back to the U.S., and spent three weeks in Rwanda doing contextual research, and then spent the rest of the summer in Paris as his research assistant at Sciences Po, which is a premier university in France and was an incredible opportunity. And little did I know until I arrived the first day at the university was that every other research assistant in the program was a master's or PhD candidate. And I was going into my senior year of college. And he knew that, obviously. Right. I Did think you find out what it was that swayed him to take you on? I never asked. I, I don't know if I was afraid of the answer or what, <laughs> but I, don't, I, think, I don't think he got many emails from American students saying, hey, I've read your book in French. Will you please take me on? There might have been a little begging in the original email, but... <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought that up, Corey, because... I think what I've seen just in my own life and from talking to to other people is that you never know unless you try. Right. And the worst thing that could have happened is that he said no. Yeah. And this but is look what happened because you asked. And this is kind of why I tell people to I was saying to you earlier, it's kind of odd. People have started coming to me for career advice, which I at times feel unqualified to give. But one of the things I say is get comfortable with failure. Get rejected from 12 universities. When I was trying to move to D.C., I applied to 65 jobs on a color-coded spreadsheet, and I got two interviews. And you only ever know the opportunities you're going to get by banging at the door. I spent most of college banging. All you need is one person to say yes. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that really is it. So, holy cow, yeah. 65. Six, little color-coded Excel spreadsheet. Um, so, I didn't apply to the same job twice accidentally. So, I graduated huh. college. I was 21. I was living at home with my parents. And I love my parents, but I wanted to not be living at home with my parents. And I made it my job to apply to jobs. So, I applied to three jobs every day. And I wouldn't let myself leave the house until I applied to the jobs because the only way you get them is with volume and dedication and everyone got a personalized cover letter and it was yeah three jobs a day for a month and a half sometimes more jobs than that and i would write down the the name of the company the job i applied for who i addressed the cover letter to and the date i submitted it so that i could when appropriate send follow-up email saying i just want to follow up on my application for this position which nobody ever responded to but was still worth as you said, worth making the effort to see if it did anything. And so I think in the end there were 65 and I got, and it was a mix of internships and entry level positions. And I got two interviews for two. Two kind of callbacks. Right. Two callbacks. Of 65, two callbacks. Two internship opportunities with Mercy Corps and another organization. And how much time had transpired from when you started this endeavor about six weeks which is pretty short i i most of my peers and friends had a longer waiting period but i think it was part of it was i had such a high volume <laughs> in such a short amount of time it was about six weeks before i got the first bite which was mercy corps and this other organization i think it goes to show that if you work hard keep your head down and do well people will vouch for you and i think one thing that's helped me is I'm not a very competitive person. I, I'm very internally competitive. I want to do well against the standard I set for myself. I don't need to do well compared to the person sitting next to me. And this comes back to age and gender because I've, I think I've been critiqued a lot by people 
in all walks of life of, oh, you're too young or I should be doing this or I could do this better than you could do this. And I just kind of keep my head down and do the job. And I think that's how you show people that you're committed is you focus on the work and you don't tell people you're good at the work. You let the work tell people you're doing well. So what's the other advice that you've given young people who have come to you to get a kind of a, a window into your secret? So success? we joked about this earlier, but I I have this little prologue to all advice I give to people, which is that nothing, no career paths are linear and that this is what worked for me and it can't work for everybody. So take it with a grain of salt and adapt it to your own context. But those who love me have referred to me as relentless. I think that served me well, that even in the face of failure or challenges, I'm incredibly persistent as a person. I think soft social skills are really important. Knowing how to communicate with people, how to be respectful, to send the thank you letter that's handwritten, to shake people's hands and look them in the eyes. Those kind of little things that show respect and engagement are super important. I tell people to be okay with failure. And then I I think another thing that's important is know what you're passionate about or the general idea of what you're passionate about and think about how what you're doing now will get you to other places you might want to go in the future. So I'm incredibly passionate about working on conflict issues. I'm not doing that in my current job and I love my current job and I've learned so much from it. But I also thought when accepting this job, okay, what skills am I going to learn in this role that will help me return to conflict some point later in my career? And there's a super transparent connection. I mean, if you want to do international development work overseas, whether it's a conflict portfolio or gender or environment or whatnot, you need to know how to manage a program. You need to know how to put good systems in place. So I, even though I'm not taking the job that is the dream job, it's a different kind of dream because it's setting you up with success and skills to go other places in life. But it's also staying focused on the things you're passionate about. So I tell people that I care about conflict work. I tell people that that's what excites me so that when little side projects come to our team, I'm able to work on those because people know those are things that get me excited. So they're willing to have me help them on projects or bring me into projects that are related to issues that I personally care about. And I think that's been really important as well. So when we were chatting before, you mentioned that some of your peers who come to you for for guidance have said that, you know, you're, you're so lucky, Corey, because you found your passion. I don't feel like I have a passion. What do you say to them? I say, first of all, yes, I am. And I recognize that. I just, as I mentioned, I decided I wanted to work as an aid worker when I was 10, which is incredibly irregular. And people thought I was insane. But uh, here we are. And I think for most, the average person, what you're passionate about right now doesn't have to be what you're passionate about for the rest of your life. And you can be passionate about something for five years. And that's incredibly valid. And I think it's trying to figure out, okay, what what am I excited about right now? And I often find when I'm speaking to women is that women are constantly coded in society to not be angry, especially women of color. Don't show that you're angry. Always be calm. Don't be emotional. Things like that. I really think that being angry is how you find your passion. So some of the things I've said to people, and I I had this really wonderful opportunity recently to coach my mother's high school teacher 
to coach some of her students who are interested in getting involved in social activism. So I Skyped with her class about how to find an issue you're passionate about. And we were saying, why are you angry? There's a lot of things going on in the world right now. You can be angry about how women are treated or politics or immigrants or refugees, healthcare. There's a hundred guns. Yes, definitely. There's a hundred reasons to be angry. What is affecting? Take to the microcosm of your world. What's affecting your mom, brother, sister? What makes you sad? What makes you frustrated? What is the thing that if you had the magic wand, you would fix in the world? And for me, that's always been conflict. I think the suffering and persecution of people based on who they are, where they happen to be born is one of the greatest injustices in the world. And that that's what drives me. It's so different for other people. So I, I, one of the things I've said to people is, Give yourself permission to be angry because like that's what can drive passion sometimes. And I think it's this weird concept for young women of allow yourself to be angry, whether it's sexism in the workplace or something else, feel that anger and figure out what's driving that anger. And that's probably what you're most passionate about. Take that anger and channel it towards fixing whatever the thing is which is something Mercy Corps does in our programs. When we work with youth in communities, we work on helping them find a sense of altruism, which is not that different 2,000 miles away from us than it is right here. Yeah. Another important thing that you said is not to be afraid to fail. Yeah. And, And I do think that there is a reluctance among some to take that first job to kind of pick a lane, if you will, because the feeling is, well, if I start, you know, in this sector, in this field, I'm locked in. Mm -hmm. And the truth is you're not. Look at that job as an opportunity to build certain skills and leverage that job as a stepping stone as you evolve to whatever that next field may be. You may decide, you know, I cannot stand this, you know, particular field. But in the course of doing that job, you've learned how to manage up, how to operate in a professional environment, to send professional emails, write a memo, hone your writing skills, whatever that case may be, pull the positive out of it. And then spin it right to get that next job. And if I this, it's funny you mentioned that because when I applied for the internship at Mercy Corps on the policy team, I'd had done a lot of my experiences in, in college had been policy work. I'd worked for the United Nations Foundation for two years, doing policy advo- and advocacy work for them. Uh, I'd worked for a number or volunteered with a number of massive atrocity prevention groups, things like that. So I I had that skill, and at the same time. As much as I loved the work, I loved going to the hill, I knew I wanted to be in the field. I knew I was a programs person. And not that I didn't value the time on the team or enjoy it, but I knew when I applied for I was like, this is the internship I am most likely to get. I was applying to a lot of policy internships because I knew those were the types I was likely to be accepted for based on my skill set and that hopefully I could transition that to other things. And I think someone asked me at one point on the on your team, they're like, so you want a career on the Hill? And I was like, no, thank you. Respect the heck out of it. Think it's incredibly noble and exciting, but I knew it was the other side of the house I was really interested in. So you played to your strengths. Yes. 
and you got your foot in the door. Right. Probably not thinking that you were going to be able to leverage that internship at Mercy Corps into a full-time job at Mercy Corps right away. Yeah, I was applying to jobs across the city while I was interning at Mercy Corps because I didn't really think it would turn into a job. I can count right now on one hand, there there have been a handful of people who have started as interns at Mercy Corps and moved either immediately into full-time jobs or within the course of a number of months after they had left right were then hired to come back so those internships are real opportunities to impress your future employers mm-hmm. in that same company definitely have you seen that with any of your other friends yes i think i think the development sector is particularly challenging and it's something i feel passionate about equitable access to work opportunities so i think the way you get a foot in and the development door is that you do an unpaid internship in DC and that leads to a job opportunity, which is a thing that many Americans and people from other countries can't afford. You can't afford to live unpaid. Um, so I think it, it can be an access issue that you have to be able to afford to take an unpaid internship. In our sector, particularly, that seems to be the name of the game is that you intern and hopefully that leads to employment. My friends who work in other sectors, um, it's usually like temp jobs or short-term employments. It seems the corporate world kind of starts tracking people when they're in college and feeds them in that way. Uh, So I think there's some nuance depending on the sector. But in development, internships are what get you in. We've said how fortunate and really unusual it is for someone so early in their professional life to kind of be at the level that you're in. But there's also the downside, which has been that you're working around the clock and you've had to make sacrifices. Is it worth it? Yes. I think it's worth it because I get to do what I love every day. And that has to be one of the greatest honors in life is that I wake up every day, I go do a job I love where I feel confident that what I'm doing is contributing to a greater entity making a difference in the world. And I would not change that for anything. Um, I think you have to figure out how to create balance. And I think work-life balance is really hard. And there are days that I'm really bad at it. And I can think of times where I, you know, there was this one day that was kind of a turning point for me early on working where we got a confidential report speaking about uh, loss of human life in a specific area of the world. And it was incredibly devastating. I mean, people were crying reading this report. And I went home and I was, you know, already feeling kind of down from seeing this information and knowing that I couldn't really talk to anyone about it. And then an activist friend of mine was having people over to watch the White Helmets documentary about Syria. And I'd already committed to going and I went. And that just put me in a worse mood. And I was just, it felt like the world was sitting on my chest. And I just remember that feeling. And I kind of made a decision. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do things like that on weeknights when after work. And you kind of make these little decisions of self-care or creating boundaries of this is this is as far as I'm willing to push myself in the name of this job. Um, and I have a lot of chronic health problems, which is not something I talk about very often, but that's a good 
kick in the butt for me to take care of myself. And I think is another thing we don't really talk about in our sector. And you and I have talked about this, of there are physical sacrifices and physical pressures and you feel it manifest in your body the way you put yourself into your work. And because of the health issues I have, my body does a pretty good job of telling me, hey, whoa, slow down. So I think I think we do make sacrifices, but the question is, is it worth it? And I have a rather morbid friend of mine who we were talking about something similar to this and they phrased the question to me, which is, bear with me, it's a bit dark. They said, if you died tomorrow, would you be okay with how you lived your life? And I think that's a really powerful question because it's not the way my friend posed this question to me. It wasn't about, did you do enough in your professional world? It was, do all the people who you love know that you love them? Are you mad at anyone? Are, like, if it all, because I mean, life is that fragile, and especially we see in our sector, like, if you walk out of the house tomorrow and you get hit by a bus, are you okay with what you're leaving? And I think that's kind of the mindset I try to operate in is, my job is one thing and it's super important, but my family and my friends and the people I love, that's everything. And I never want my job to keep me from being present for the people who need me. So I think that's a good temperature check of, okay, I'll put as much of myself into my job as I can, as it still allows me to show up for the people in my life who I need to show up for. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.